Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and for fuel of fire. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Thus far the reading of God's word, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful word glorious word in the prophet Isaiah, which foretells of the coming of your son, Jesus, in such a particular, specific way. Help us to treasure in our hearts what is is said here, what was prophesied here, and to glory in Christ and in Christ alone. Help us in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. This is the third sermon in a three-part series on Isaiah 7, 8, and then the first part of 9. And the first two sermons, we got a little bit more specific about the historical context and a lot of specific application. Today I want to encourage you to broaden that, the, the scope and we're going to look at the big picture. And really the, app, the main application, I want to get, kind of just tell you ahead of time, the main application here is going to be glorying in the gospel and the cross in the story of redemption from Isaiah's prophecy all the way to the second coming and beyond into eternity. I just want us to to treasure that today and to consider what God has done for us and how he has orchestrated history so wonderfully, so perfectly, perfectly. In the annals of history, you can find humans in every era pursuing a form of government that they hoped 
would bring about lasting justice, perpetual peace. But in every case, the pursuit failed. The pursuit has failed every time. The depths of man's depravity in every age from Adam to today. The depths of man's depravity have made it impossible for mankind to form a government that will establish long-standing justice and perpetual peace. Our nation's government, America's government, is no exception to this rule. American government has been described as being of the people, by the people, for the people, and yet it too has proven to be susceptible to the sinful hearts of the people. One thinks of Winston Churchill's famous quip, quote, democracy is the worst form of government, except for all those other forms that have been tried from time to time, end quote. Churchill's point here is that no form of human government will ever turn out as well as we would have liked at the beginning. It'll it'll never produce the justice and the peace that we long for in the depths of our being, that we were created to long for. It'll never produce this as long as depraved humans are involved. Our passage from Isaiah 9 answers our deep longing for an eternally righteous government. Isaiah predicts a perfect ruler who will reign over his government, over his kingdom, justly, righteously, and it will prosper, and it will be peaceful forever. This king, of course, is Jesus the Christ, and this perfect government rests on his shoulders alone. And we ended last week's sermon at the end of Isaiah 8, which is to say we ended last week's sermon with the gloom and the thick darkness of a wicked people who were seeking mediums and wizards and necromancers instead of seeking God. And the final verses of Isaiah 8 describe a people who roam the earth cursing God in their angry despair. To use Paul's language in Ephesians 2, these people are without God, I'm sorry, without hope and without God in the world. They're living in utter darkness. But in Isaiah 9, God flicks on the light. Having described the darkness that will dominate the land and the world for centuries, Isaiah now directs our attention elsewhere to the hope of glory that lies ahead, that's on the horizon. A day is coming for the people of God when a great light will shine and a special child will be born. And this will be a time of righteousness and peace and prosperity. God's glory will fill the whole earth. Isaiah 7 introduced us to this son. Talked about that two sermons ago. And there we're given one of his names, Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now Isaiah 9 tells us more about this son and he gives us four more names at the end of verse 6. And we'll look at these 
titles in turn, but let's start at the beginning of the chapter and work our way through. Isaiah 9 verses 1 and 2 say, Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed. And when at first he lightly esteemed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. So Isaiah is looking forward to a time when there will be no more gloom and distress for those who have endured years of gloom and distress. Notice the references here to the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali. And then in the reference to Galilee in verses 1 and 2. These regions are in the northern part of Israel. The part where Jesus was from. Jesus was raised in Galilee in the north. And that's where he conducted most of his earthly ministry. Jesus was the light that came to dwell and to do ministry in the dark region of Galilee. Isaiah prophesies about this. And Matthew, in fact, quotes these two verses from these two verses, Isaiah 9, 1 and 2, to explain why Jesus came to reside in Capernaum. Listen as I read Matthew 4, 13 to 16. And leaving Nazareth, Jesus came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea. Hear all these echoes from Isaiah 9, 1 and 2, which is by the sea in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet Isaiah saying, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who sit in darkness have seen a great light, and upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. So Matthew confirms for us that the prophecy in Isaiah 9 is fulfilled in the life and ministry, even the growing up of Jesus. The coming of Jesus was God's way of turning on the cosmic light switch. Until Jesus came, darkness reigned supreme. The entire Old Testament, we could say, takes place at night in darkness without the fullness of the light. But in the incarnation, God turned on the light. No one on earth produced this light. No human was responsible for this light. Humanity had been groping in the darkness. We'd been sitting in the land of darkness, and then suddenly we found ourselves blinking in the light. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light, the greatest of lights. You see, the sin of man was not enough to keep God from sending the light of man. The sin of man was not greater than the light of man. And John says in John 8, 12, or Jesus says in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. John 1, 4, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light was raised in Galilee. That's where he grew up into a man and became a construction worker. It's where he began his ministry with his disciples. It's where he first shined bright on the earth. The gospel of John tells us that when this light shines into darkness, the darkness can't overcome it. The darkness is forced to flee because the light is greater than the darkness. 
This light who was born in Bethlehem, raised in Galilee. The light who shined bright in Zebulun and Naphtali. The light who lived a perfect life and died on a cross just outside of Jerusalem. He's the same light who shines in the hearts of believers, of Christians, of those who know God, enabling them to turn away from darkness and to turn to the light, to walk in it, to stay in it. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 that the prince of this world, the devil, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they're unable to see the light of the prince of peace. So the prince of this world has blinded them to the gospel of the glory of the prince of peace, who's the image of God. But Paul says, if you belong to Jesus, then God has opened your eyes and he has shined his light into your heart so that you're no longer blind. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. From Isaiah's point of view, when Messiah comes, he won't just displace the darkness with light. He'll also displace sadness and gloom with gladness and rejoicing, with joy. Look at Isaiah 9.3, if you have your Bibles open to Isaiah 9. Look at verse 3 with me. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest, as men rejoice when they, divided, when they divide the spoil. The word joy appears twice, and the word rejoice, the verb form, appears twice as well. What's the result of God's sending the Messiah child? Unspeakable joy. Abundant joy sweeps over the land, over the people of God. And the second half of verse 3 uses two metaphors to describe the joy that Isaiah envisions. If you'll look there, there'll be more joy than farmers at harvest time and then more joy than soldiers dividing spoil after a great victory. The joy of God's people is greater than the joy of a successful farmer, greater than the joy of a victorious soldier. Our joy doesn't stem from a fruitful crop harvest or or from the spoils of war with the sword the source of our joy is the lord alone the only true source of joy and rejoicing is god himself because god is sending himself we can have this joy because god has sent himself we can have this joy we 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 can put an even finer point on this From another scripture, there's no true joy other than the joy that comes from being with God or being in the presence of God. Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. So all the joy that there is to have, the fullness of it happens in your presence, the psalmist says. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore, for eternity. So, so eternity is going to be pure bliss because we're going to be in God's presence. We're going to be with him in a way that we're not with him yet. He's with us now, but he's going to be with us then in an even fuller sense. So what's your true source of joy and rejoicing? What makes you joyful? 
What's the foundation of your joy? When you get just all the way down to the bottom of it, is, is your joy built on the eternal rock of Christ or is it built on the sinking sand of temporary things like the things that were under your Christmas tree last week? Many confessing Christians are still groping in the dark for joy. They're groping in the dark for something that's not there. The darkness is dysfunctional and it proves dissatisfying every time. But it's familiar and its allure is strong. Are you looking for joy in darkness, in the things of this world? Do you regularly try to find peace and satisfaction in dark places? If so, you're trying to walk in darkness instead of light. So stop dwelling in the land of the shadow of death, as Isaiah puts it. The light of Jesus Christ has shone upon you. And now now live in it, walk in it, revel in it. And then die in it. When we get to the end of verse 3, we're still left with the question of how. How will, it, how will God increase our joy? How, how will God make the joy of his people grow? What will it look like? What will be the reason for their joy? For our joy? This is about us. Well, the answer comes in the rest of the passage. The first reason for this joy is in verse 4. There will be joy because God will take away our burdens and deliver us from our oppressor, from the one who put the burdens on us. For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian, verse 4 says. The messianic age that... Isaiah envisions is an age characterized by the lifting of the burdens of God's people. Christ lifted our burden of sin and replaced it with the easy yoke and a light burden. An easy yoke and a light burden, he says in Matthew 11. The Messianic age is also characterized by victory over oppressors, over enemies, over tyranny. The end of verse 4 says, as in the day of Midian. What happened in the day of Midian? We, we have to know our Bibles to understand what Isaiah is saying here. He's expecting us to catch this reference. As in the day of Midian is a reference to Judges 7, where Gideon defeated the Midianites without a sword in his hand. It was a miracle. And at that time, Israel was powerless to save itself from the oppressive domination of the Midianites. So the, the power of God came to their rescue. God caused the Midianites to be overcome with fear when the light from Gideon's 300 men, a mere 300 men, tore through the darkness. That Their light tore through the darkness, you remember. You can go back and look at that in Judges 7. The evil forces of Midian turned on themselves until they had destroyed themselves. Then Israel was free from its bondage to the Midianites. 
the yoke of Israel's burden, the staff of Israel's shoulder, the rod of Israel's oppressor was shattered. Midian's dominion imploded in Judges 7. That's what Isaiah is talking about here. Isaiah 9.4 points ahead to an even greater victory, though, than the one of Gideon and the Midianites, a victory accomplished, accomplished by this Messiah child. The death and resurrection of Christ has broken the devil's seemingly unbreakable yoke of sin and death. Satan's dark gloom has been, I'm sorry, his dark kingdom has been terrorized by the kingdom of light, by the light of the world. Satan's yoke and staff and rod have been shattered. Satan's dominion has imploded. See, the devil turned his dark weapon of death onto Jesus. But in killing Jesus, the only thing Satan actually accomplished was the destruction of his own kingdom. Through the cross of Christ, we who were enslaved to Satan through fear of death have been freed from our bondage once and for all. Hebrews 2.15 And we've been freed to serve God with joy, with rejoicing. If we're going to be Christians who are clear on the gospel, on the gospel of this Messiah child, on the gospel of Jesus Christ, if we're going to be Christians who are clear on the gospel, then we must be clear on what our true enemy is. What is it mainly that seeks to oppress us? What is it that seeks to tyrannize us? What is it that seeks to hold us in bondage? It's not the Midianites. It's not the Islamic extremists. It's not the federal government. It's not the Springfield City Council. It's not the United Nations. It's not a mean boss or a corporate headquarters or strict parents. It's not even your church leaders. If you, if you see your main oppressor, your main tyrannizer as a human entity, a human authority, then you lack a proper understanding of the bad news, which means you may not fully understand the good news. Your main enemy is sin and death. There, there, there may be others, but your most noteworthy oppressor the one that you should think about one million times more than you think about all the others combined is your own sin and the tyranny of death which apart from God's grace would have had power over you and power to condemn you to hell eternally unlike any of the other tyrannical forces in your life. You didn't need Jesus to conquer anyone more than you needed him to conquer the old Adam in you. Gideon freed Israel from the Midianites, from from those oppressors in Judges 7. But Jesus has freed us from the oppressive burden of sin. 
Gideon freed Israel from temporary physical bondage, but Jesus has freed us from eternal spiritual bondage. If you belong to this Messiah that Isaiah prophesied about, then he has emancipated you from the everlasting bonds of sin and death. That's the good news. That's where our heart should be centered. The second reason for the joy of verse 3 comes in verse 5. There will be joy because there will be peace. For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and the garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and as fuel for fire. So all the, all the war garments are going to be just thrown into a big heap of fire. It's the only use they're going to have. And so here, Isaiah predicts that the Messiah will abolish war. He'll bring about a time when all the implements of battle will be burned, consumed. The gear of soldiers will be used as fuel for those fires. In Luke 2.14, the angels announce this kind of peace at the birth of Jesus. They sing, glory to God in the highest, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. As we come to verses 6 and 7, we come to the climax, to the heart of the passage. Everything in verses 1 to 5 culminates, uh, culminates in verses 6 and 7. So let's review. Who, who will replace or displace the, the gloom of verse 1 with glory? Who is the light of verse 2 that will displace the darkness? Who is the cause of joy and rejoicing in verse 3? Who will shoulder the burdens and break the oppression in verse 4? Who will burn up the sandals and garments of war in verse 5? In other words, who who are God's people waiting for? Who is the basis of their joy and hope? Who will redeem them from sin's oppression? Who can conquer sin and death once and for all? We find our answer in verses 6 and 7. The Son's humanity is established in the first part of verse 6. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. The Savior of the world will be a child, a son who is born of a woman, of a virgin. At the end of verse 6, this son is described memorably in a string of four couplets. Each of these four couplets is a name for Jesus. And these four names point both to his humanity and to his deity, his godness. The opening words of verse 6 remind us that this child is being given for us. The God who is with you is also the God who is for you. That's what the angels communicated to the Bethlehem shepherds in Luke 2.11. Today in the town of David, as a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. The name Emmanuel, God with us, also means it implies necessarily that God is for us. God is with you for your sake. He's not just with you 
He's with you for you, for your sake, on your behalf. In preparation for this sermon, I listened to Handel's Messiah all the way through and meditated on the scriptures, not all of them, but a lot of times I just stopped and read through the scriptures that were being sung, one of which is Romans 8, 31 to 34, most of that passage, which says this, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You see how God is for us? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. It's interesting that, that the, the man, I forgot his name off the top of my head, who wrote the lyrics to Handel's Messiah, wasn't Handel, um, he saw this connection between God being with us in the incarnation in the Messiah, and God being for us. So he chose this passage. God is with you and for you in your fight against sin. He's with you and for you in your battles against the world, the flesh, your own flesh, the old Adam, and the devil. God is with you and for you in your loneliness, in your despair, in your insecurities, in your failures, in your disappointments, in your tears, in your fears, in your struggles with doubt. God is with you and for you even when your faith is small and your heart is full of trouble. God is slow to find fault. We're reminded of this in James 1 where James says, ask for wisdom and God will give it generously without finding fault. He's not a God who finds fault. Yeah, you're not perfect. You've made mistakes, but ask for wisdom because he's going to overlook those sins and give you wisdom because you're asking for it. He's slow to find fault and he's quick to act on your behalf, especially when you go to him humbly in prayer. See, he loves you, his child, more than you have ever even thought about loving anyone, including your own children. He's with you and for you all the time, even when you mess up. And if God is with you and therefore for you, who can be against you? If God is with you and for you, what's it matter if the whole world is against you? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. The one who bears the full weight of your sin on his shoulders is the same one who bears on his shoulders the full weight of the everlasting cosmic government. The shoulders of Jesus can bear the weight of the world without buckling even one time. Yours can't. Mine can't. But his can and his do. Psalm 55, 22. Cast your burden 
on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. So why are you trying to carry so much weight on your shoulders? Why is your burden still so heavy? Why are you trying to sustain yourself? That's God's job. Why do you put so much pressure on yourself to make sure everything in your life turns out the way that it ought to? Why don't you cast those cares on Jesus? His shoulders are broad enough to handle it. His shoulders are broad enough to handle it, and that's, that's how he can say that his yoke is easy and his burden is light because he bears the burden for you. He bears the yoke. He does the work. Your job is just to take the next step that God has ordained for you. So obey God and do the next thing. And cast all your other cares on the monarch of the eternal government. You can do that. It's okay. God gives you permission to do that. So those of you who are go-getters, those of you who are self-sufficient, those of you who take on more than you ought, God has given you not just permission but a command to let him be the one who bears the weight of the world, including your little world. In verse 6, the Messiah is given a fourfold name. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, there are four names here, each one consisting of two key descriptors that tell us a lot about Jesus. Regarding the first name, Wonderful Counselor, there should be no comma between Wonderful and Counselor. It's one name, as most modern translations now recognize. The word wonderful refers to the ability to perform supernatural, wonderful works. We could say the ability to do signs and wonders. The word counselor refers to giving wise counsel as, as a king's advisor would do. So Jesus came to do signs and wonders, and he came to teach wisdom. To give wise counsel. He is the embodiment of wisdom. He is the wonderful counselor. The second name, mighty God, clinches all by itself the doctrine of the incarnation. It's a done deal. The baby lying in the manger is both fully human and fully mighty God. This one phrase, two words, mighty God, is really all the scriptural evidence we need to prove the deity of Jesus, to prove that Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh. There's, you just can't get around it. It means what it says. The word for God here is El, which is the most common word in the Hebrew Bible for deity, for God. And if there were any doubt about this, then in the next chapter, Isaiah 10, verses 20 and 21, Isaiah uses this very same title, Mighty God, to refer to Yahweh. Crystal clear. Yahweh is mighty God. The Messiah, Jesus, is mighty God. So we can end the debate about the deity of Jesus right there with these two words in Isaiah. We haven't even got to the New Testament yet. 
Isaiah is saying an amazing thing here. This son, talked about in Isaiah 7 and referred to in Isaiah 8 as Emmanuel. This son won't just be a newborn baby boy from this virgin's womb. He'll be God in the flesh, God incarnate. The word mighty is also used for mighty warriors. It can be used of God, but maybe even more often, I forgot to look at the statistics, but often used for mighty warriors in the Old Testament. So taken as a whole, this name reveals the infinite power of Jesus Christ, the the omnipotent warrior king who will return to earth someday The king will return to slay the rest of his enemies with the sword coming out of his mouth, as Revelation 19 prophesies. The third name, Everlasting Father, once again points to both the humanity and the deity of Christ. The title Father is is an everyday word, but here it gets coupled with the word everlasting, eternal, which means that this father figure is supernatural, divine. And the word everlasting doesn't just point forward, it also points to eternity past. Another famous verse, Micah 5.2, prophesies about the ruler who will come forth from Bethlehem, this famous verse from Micah 5.2, the, the ruler who will come forth from Bethlehem, and it says that he will be from of old, from ancient days, which, which is another way of saying from eternity, from the beginning. Calling Jesus Father is unusual. It seems odd to us, right? I mean, the Father is God the Father, the first person of the Trinity. We don't, we don't typically call Jesus, we don't refer to him as Father. When Jesus says to pray, our Father, he was talking about the first person of the Trinity, not himself, But we should also think of Jesus as a father to his children. He's not God the Father. He's a separate person from God the Father. But he's like his father, and he is a father to us. And there are places in the Gospels, at least a couple, where Jesus affectionately addresses people as son or daughter. For example, Matthew 9, 2. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. See also Mark 5, 34. So for all eternity, Jesus will will deal, will relate to us, his children, as a loving father. He'll be our everlasting father. We need to think of Jesus as a fatherly figure. Prince of Peace is the crowning title given to the Messiah, if you will. The Prince of Peace will establish peace on earth among men. But you see, his foremost mission is not to establish peace among men from one man to another, between one man and another. The Prince of Peace came primarily to establish peace between man and God. The most important war going on in Isaiah's day was not the war between Judah and her and, and, and the nations round about who were oppressing her. The most significant war was the one that mankind began waging against God 
in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve, when, when Adam and Eve declared war against God in Genesis 3, they compelled God to stand against them in judgment. They put themselves at enmity with God. And God couldn't just overlook mankind's sin, sweep it under the rug. God is righteous and just. He's a just judge and he's holy. He's perfect. He couldn't just turn a blind eye as though it had never happened. As though the offense never took place. That's not how God's grace works. That's not how the mercy of God operates. The righteous, just, and holy God had to declare war against an unrighteous, unjust, unholy humanity. There was no peace between God and man at the moment when Adam sinned. The very nature of God compelled him to pour out his wrath on humanity. We can be grateful that he didn't do it immediately in the garden. However, human history, as I just intimated, didn't end in Genesis 3 because the justice and holiness and righteousness of God are matched by his kindness and love and mercy. They're not, there's no tension there, there's just harmony. God still had to punish humanity's sin. He was still at war with mankind. His, his nature still required him to pour out his intense wrath, his eternal judgment on humanity. But there was a way for him to do this without wiping humanity off the face of the earth forever. There was a way for God to condemn mankind eternally while making it possible for mankind to enjoy peace with God eternally. eternally. But there was only one way. God himself would have to become man and then he would have to endure his own anger and judgment and wrath. He would have to go to the cross where he would receive all at once the collective punishment that his people deserved. Then and only then could there be peace between God and man. Fellow Christians, you have peace with God because Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, wrapped himself up in our humanity, took upon himself the damnation of God that your sins deserved, and then gave you his perfect righteousness so that you can stand before God justified, saved, no longer under condemnation. Verse 7 says, Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, then forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Are you looking forward to, to spending eternity 
and the perfectly peaceful government of King Jesus. You can look forward to this because the Prince of Peace has made a way for you through the blood of his cross. The kingdom of Christ was established at the cross. It was established at the cross, this government, and it'll never end. It'll be consummated, but it'll never end. And, and do you know what guarantees that all these glorious truths and prophecies will happen? Do you know what guarantees your peace with God? Do you see in the text what guarantees that this ideal government will be established from that time forward, even forever? Look at the last line of verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. It's not up to you or me. It's God's doing. God's zeal will make all all these things happen. And no power in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below the earth can stop it from happening. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Let's pray. Oh God, we give you glory because of your kingdom, because of your eternal government that you've established in Jesus. And we thank you that we get to be citizens in this government, partakers even of your nature, partakers of salvation. This week, Lord, help us to be faithful citizens of the kingdom that Christ has established on the cross and help us to live in the light. Give us grace to walk not in the darkness, but in the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and in his presence. Help us to do this for his sake. Amen.